Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Gaines, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann and today we're very lucky to be joined by Alex Bilby. How are you doing, Alex? Hey, I'm really well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good, thank you, sir. Very good indeed. Uh, it must be interesting for you, actually, you know, having your own podcast and stuff, you know, to be on the other side, be the guest now of the show. Though I know you've done it with like full stack and stuff. Yeah, it's been it's been a good while since I've been on another podcast. I think I did full stack in about 2016 or possibly even 2015. It's been it's been a good while. Awesome. Well, you know, I hope I won't scare you off from being a guest again. <laughs> no, not at all. If, if anything, you're lucky because I've got a full podcasting setup here. Well, no, exactly. That's the thing. When we were back and forth and stuff and you were saying that and I'd already known like, co- you know, from coding solo and stuff, that, you know, that your microphone, you know, sounded good. So I thought, well, yeah, we're, we're definitely in on this. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, for the audience, would you mind maybe introducing yourself and just like, disca- you know, describing how you actually got into programming? Yeah. So I've been a developer now for, or a developer professionally now for, oh, it must be a, coming up to 10 years. Um, I, during my uh, degree, I started working for the university I was at, which was uh, University of Lincoln, as a researcher, and I got um, I got really into actually doing the practical side instead of the theoretical, boring computer vision stuff. And anyway, I I took my industry out year out between my second and third year, worked full time for the university, had a couple of p- published pieces pieces of research, and then. Um, I went back and I did a term or not even a term of my third year and dropped out and basically because I had an assignment I didn't really want to do but I also had the opportunity to go and give a talk at a conference in America and being young arrogant 19 20 year old I uh chose the <laughs> I chose the conference and what was the conference um it was a higher educational conference uh, I can't even remember the name of it now but it was in Denver and Colorado so it's both my first it's my first conference abroad, my first time to America, and it was way more exciting than doing some, um, I think it was like a prologue assignment I had to do or something. So anyway, I, I decided to, to drop out. It was the right thing for me to do at the time. And I, I continued working for the university until about 2013 before, and oh, until I then moved to London and I, I worked for a variety of startups. I worked a little bit with government and some enterprise companies and then for the last two years I've worked for myself until this past month where I've just gone full-time uh, as head of engineering at a startup called Popsa. Nice because I, I know you obviously from like the coding solo stuff you know that you did like your freelance stuff how have you found the transition now back to a full-time gig? Um, it was well I'd, I'd been working they were my client since July last year. Oh that does help there. <laughs> yeah so so you know, I wasn't going into a new office or anything. And also I, I used to work there years ago. I knew the business really well. Basically, I was hired back as a freelancer to rewrite some code that I wrote donkeys years ago that needed um, updating to support their new platform and their new ideas and such. And basically the team grew to, you know, about eight or nine developers or so, I think we are now. And basically there was an opportunity to relieve the cto of some of the having to look after like the team at the like the ground level so we came to an agreement and yeah 
I'm now head of engineering. So I'm kind of like in charge of the developing or the, the engineering team day to day. So I'm doing the sprint planning and kind of like the product owner role. And then I'm also working on the back end side of it. And we've got a team of iOS engineers, team of Android engineers. So, and like kind of, you know, what, what stack then do you use there? So we're actually transitioning from a, certainly on the back end side, it's a, a big old Laravel monolith application, which we've split up into about 20 Golang microservices. So it's all running on Docker. Um, they're very chatty microservices. They're not, so, so they've all got the principle of one service doing one particular thing and doing it really well, but they're quite, they're, there's, a lot, there's an awful lot of intercommunication. Um, it's very chatty um, and it, it, it's really fun to work on. The other thing is it's a global product. So we're we're starting to look at how, uh, as we span, expand into Asia and America, looking at deploying uh, the services and the architecture globally. So we're solving some really fun challenges there. And then and then the iOS and the Android apps are native apps. I, I've never really been exposed to Android before. So I went out and bought myself a Pixel 2 uh, so I could help test it. And I, I become a little bit of a fanboy in a way oh, really you from from you've kind of gone from the mac camp then to the android camp well kind of i'm not using it as my full-time device only because you'll have to claw iMessage from my cold dead hands and and also i've got about five thousand notes on my iphone and on my mac synced in iCloud and that would take uh i hate to think how long that would take to transition to something like google keep or google notes or whatever the product's called so yeah, it it would take a while for me to come off, but um, yeah, I really like it. It's um, I love how unobtrusive notifications are on Android, as in as in like you get a little vibration and you get something in just like the top me- at the top status bar. It doesn't have this full screen, you know, pop up. You know, someone sent you a text message with stupid animation sliding in from the top and disrupting you from watching your film or whatever you're doing. So Golang then, like, you know, using that in a day-to-day practice in the microservice architecture in Docker, I'd be interested to like, firstly, I experienced using Golang. And also, how do you go about developing and testing these like microservices? Because breaking these things up and then making sure that they all work, the integration works and stuff. And, and how do you actually go about deploying them? So when I was writing PHP full-time, I became increasingly more and more obsessed, especially after PHP 7 was released, with um, having... Um, strict typing uh, just because it solved so many increasingly more and more bugs and I got to the point where I was getting frustrated with big full stack frameworks so I started writing the minimal amount of code I could because it became so much more testable so much easier to deploy so, so much faster as well I mean if you compare like running like a little bit of thrown together PHP code versus uh, to run like an API endpoint versus say Laravel or Symfony or something like that. It's so much faster because you're not doing all the bootstrapping and loading in all these files. And you own all the code, don't you? I mean, this is the end days, like a dependency you bring in to the customer facing client, you own that code as well. So it's just more complexity that you own. And I suppose like with Golang and stuff, they already have like inbuilt HTTP servers and all this, you know, out the box stuff. That must just be great. Exactly. So my obsession with writing the minimal amount of code that was as strictly typed as possible and was as testable as possible, I kind of knew about Golang and I'd I'd had a little play on the side. But anyway, last, I think it was around January last year or February last year, I actually sat down and I, I, I tried to, I tried to learn it and I had a little pet project I wanted to work on. 
and I, I knew I was going to be sick of writing PHP. So I sat down and learned it. And the beautiful thing about Golang is it's such a small language. There's very little to it. So for example, you've, you've only got a for loop. You don't have like a while loop or a while do loop. The for loop acts as your, is your only way of doing loops. And you can type it in slightly different ways, but there's very, very little to the language. It's strictly typed. The built-in libraries are incredible. You can do everything, as you said, from writing HTTP servers through to, to WebSockets, through to doing uh, really advanced crypto. And then the, the, the other thing I really liked was that part of the Golang tool chain is a tool called GoFormat. And all Go code you'll find on the internet looks exactly the same. It makes it so much easier to to read other people's code and pick it up um so coupled with a, a language that hasn't really got any feature or, or hasn't got very many features to it plus very readable third-party code plus an incredible built-in standard library it just made it so easy to throw things together so you, you start so I, I basically i started to write you know your normal api web servers and then i got into playing with WebSockets. and then what really did it for me was writing command line applications so We've got so many command line applications now at work um, and that I've written personally uh, because because at the end of the day, you've got these statically compiled binaries. You've just got to pass one thing around. So uh, as a little example, we've got one that's... So so uh, the, the startup I'm working for is called Popsa. Um, I've got a, a binary I wrote called Popsa Your Life. So I can see, I can change directory into any of uh, the microservices, type PYL on the command line and it will in this little Go binary, it will package it into a Docker container, push it to a Docker repository and register it as a new deployment in ECS, which is what we use as the orchestrator for Docker with AWS. And it does it all for me. It, it does a couple of other things behind the scenes. Uh, another example, I wrote like a, a f- 10 lines of code that allows the mobile developers to punch their local IP address into the... Um, the firewall so they can access the staging service from home um it's just a joy oh that's awesome that's definitely one and as you say because it's compiled and it creates these tiny little binaries it's just a win-win yeah absolutely it's it's also really really fast as well i'm not i'm starting to benchmark things uh in the tens of microseconds as opposed to you know like seconds for large api api responses the, the the other thing that really helped is that um because we've got a global app that's used all you know we ship to about 50 different countries our physical product we've got we've got users all over the world and we made a switch to um google's protocol buffers as the serialization instead of json um, because as we're expanding our product this summer some of the json responses i worked out were going to be about five megabytes in size and my my go my go to user is this farmer on a three G connection in the middle of Australia in the outback. And basically, this farmer needs to have the best possible user experience he can. So we switched to protocol buffers, which GoLang coming from Google and also protocol protocol buffers coming from Google. I've got a really good tight integration, and not only we're we getting really fast binary responses that are about sixty to seventy percent lighter. It also fits really nicely in with this new Golang based toolchain. Um, whereas the it, you can you can work with it in PHP, but it's not as nice. The the compiled code isn't necessarily as optimized as it is otherwise for Go. That's cool. And, and, and I'm interested actually, like with your Docker images and stuff. Like, how do you package them up? Do you use like the Golang containers, like images? Sorry, or do you you go from scratch and then just include the binaries to you know save on space? 
I use a, a minimal Alpine Linux image, uh, which has got like an updated certificate store, and it's got a few of the pre-compiled binaries into the image or the base image that's used. But e- each one comes in, in at somewhere between five and twenty megabytes, depending on what the application, what the microservice is, and you know what it's doing. And then this is compared to you know potentially thousands of files for like a standard Laravel application that needs packaging up. Oh, yes. Well, and so moving back to PHP, what you're quite famous for and quite known for is the OAuth 2 library that you made initially in CodeIgniter and then moving out to be agnostic and now with like the PHP League. And I'll be really interested kind of to know your experience with managing that and, and like you know, how it started off and, and then how it became so popular and how you, you know, invested time in managing it and then eventually decided, you know, to kind of move on. Sure. So that project started as a result of um, a research project i was doing whilst working for the university of lincoln and that was all around uh, authentication and apis and uh, open data or the concept of opening up the educa- higher educational data so that anyone could consume it and around that time facebook released their graph api so i think this was 2012 and they um, supported the authentication method uh OAuth 2 and I think they were the first public implementation of it. And they supported something like draft five of the specification. And it was so easy to use compared to OAuth 1. You didn't need to do all the signature signing and all of that jazz. And so from that, I all of these APIs we were creating at, at the university were Codeuniter based. So as you do, you create a Codeuniter package as we all as we all did back then. And then um, later on, we started to move to Laravel and Symfony and a few other homebrew um, frameworks and so i needed a, a more agnostic package that was you know more class-based i i think around the time let's say php 5.6 came out or something and it was the one that had namespaces or had better support for namespaces i can't remember which one it was and composer was starting to become a thing and packagist and so yeah so i, I moved it from a, um, a codeigniter only package to a, a more generic php package and then I think it, it it must have been around 2013, 2014. Uh, myself and Phil Sturgeon and Frank de Junger, who wrote Fly System, uh, which power, powers Laravel fi, uh, Laravel's file system package, um, and Ben Cortler and a few others, we were ch- I, I think we were at a pub at a conference or something, and we came to the conclusion that there were all these great packages out there, but there was a big hit-by-a-bus problem in that if the package author went away or got bored or such, you'd have this really awesome package that was never receiving any updates and, you know, potentially would be lost to the ether. So uh, if it should anything happen to the author. So we decided to create um, what we dubbed the PHP League of Extraordinary Packages, um, or the League for short. And it was basically, the idea was it was a set of really good generic PHP packages that were all under a common namespace. So if you've ever imported a PHP library that started with leak um, or leak slash whatever, leak slash file system, fly system, sorry, or leak slash CSV, they're, they're all PHP leak packages. Uh, and this really took off and, you know, it, 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 we, we became quite well known for good rock solid packages that, that solved, you know, really common problems, um, but weren't trying to be frameworks. And this was great. And um, my the OAuth 2 library I wrote got more and more popular. I think when I finished working on the package around the end of last year, it was around 3,400 stars on GitHub. 
Um, I had a look today. It's now had 5 million downloads and it's at 3,800 stars on GitHub. And that, that was incredible. And it was great to work on whilst I was writing PHP, but increasingly more and more over my career, I didn't necessarily have the time, both in my day job or personally, to work on an open source library. And so in back in 2014, I wrote a blog post called um, Open Source Guilt. It went around the internet quite a bit. I think it's my most popular blog post today. And I, I just kind of wrote about how I had this really popular package that was, or code base that was being used by lots of people. Um, and it was, you know, I know it was being used at the BBC, at Yahoo, um, NPR Radio. Uh, so some quite big organizations were using it. But um, what triggered it was basically I had an email from some developer who was just getting really angry at me. Um, no, so he wasn't angry at me. He was disappointed at me because I wasn't putting any effort, in his opinion, I wasn't putting any effort into it. And so that, I think, was the start of my uh, wanting to eventually get out of open source or particularly on this library just because I couldn't commit to it and it was unfair to the users of the package and also to myself as well. So last year, I finally wrote a blog post saying I was looking for a new maintainer and now there's a team of other people led by a really great guy called uh, Andy Millington who works for the University of Edinburgh who have taken over it and this this guilt I had for many many years uh, was lifted. It's really interesting and, and it's, it's sad because you know you you produce this at the kindness of your heart something like this you know you do it for the love of it you do to solve a problem and you just, you're sharing it you know it's for people to you know to help the other people solve a problem and if other people are taking you know kind of this personal or they're disappointed in you that you're not spending enough time in it you, you people change but you know phil sturgeon's out of the php community in some regard now because he's moving on to ruby you know golang all these other languages you know you you can take your time you know be in a, in a language be in a an ecosystem or a community and you can leave but with open source it does seem like you're stuck you know people say well no now it's popular now you've got to use it and but it's nice then that you're able to break the shackles and and kind of you know move on yeah exactly i think i think what would really help the open source community if there was some sort of open source license that basically said okay you can use this personally and commercially whatever but don't expect anything from here on look i'm put, i'm putting this out in the wild it might never receive another update, but I this is a bit of code that I found useful. In some ways, I guess it's almost like a Stack Overflow answer. Maybe what we need is a, kind of like a mashup between GitHub and Stack Overflow where you can just drop a bit of code. So look, I found this useful. It solved this particular problem for me at the time. Please don't ask me any questions about it, but here it is. I'm donating it to the public. Yeah. And you're doing it at the kindness of your heart. I don't, this is what I don't understand is that people, you know, you, you release something to be nice. And then if you're getting backlash from it, it makes no sense. You, you then kind of repel from it. Uh, you do the inverse of what you want to do, which is share. Yeah, exactly. But it, it was a rewarding experience. It, it did quite a lot for me in terms of my career. Um, it was something good that I could put on my CV. And, you know, when I was freelancing as well, I could use it to help sell myself. And I'm really pleased with the league took off and as you said like myself and phil sturgeon aren't really involved with the league at all anymore but that's still a thing that's going and it's still recognized for quality and so hopefully i've made my own little mark somewhere on the php universe even if i'm not necessarily in that world anymore absolutely you know moving on from that something else you're well known for is you know like your aws so exploring into aws a lot of your blog posts and stuff talk about aws um when, when did you first get interested in aws 
So it was around 2013. I was working for a startup, and I was fa- I was I was quite a fair with working with Linux st- servers and using Ansible and things like that. And uh, this company used AWS, which I'd had very little exposure to. And on the whole, I think like everyone has when they first encounter AWS, you think it's the most confusing, unnecessarily complex um, system you'll ever meet. But slowly, and I mean very slowly over a period of years, I've come to completely love it. And I'm a secret AWS evangelist now. Um, unfortunately, I'm not paid by them. But yeah, I, 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 I love AWS. I think it's um, a fascinating service that just keeps getting better and better. When one that one of the common problems I find when people start looking at AWS is they they see okay I'm moving from say DigitalOcean or Linode where it's vanilla uh, Linux server hosting let's say and you're very used to setting up say PHP by yourself and then you'll install MySQL on you know the same server and then you might eventually move it onto a second server when you get big enough things like that AWS is my first exposure to managed services and especially when you're like say like the only backend developer and you're working for a company who are prepared to put a little bit of money behind um like your hosting being able to say move your mysql hosting to aws's relational database service rds where they not only install it for you keep your server patched but they also have a battle tested backup and restore capability point in time and everything exactly it's it's such a relief and it's just one less thing you need to worry about um and especially because you've got you've then got it it plugs into their um cloudwatch logging system and all the other services and just over time i got to i got to learn and use increasingly more and more of their services and aws have got about 120 services now or something ridiculous covering everything from databases to web servers to storage machine learning iot mobile services video encoding you know if you want to build a startup that does pretty much anything online aws will have a service for you and every reinvent you get more and every reinvent you got more i was actually at reinvent last year and oh jealous sat i got, I got to sit there and uh, clap along and when they announced golang for lambda you know i was probably i was, I was probably the loudest cheer in the room but no uh, aws is fascinating and what what i love about it is and which I think frustrates most people when they first start using AWS. AWS get, only give you about 50% of the solution. So for example, um, if, if you're using the homebrewed Docker solution, so Elastic Container Service or ECS, out of the box, you can set up a little Docker cluster. You can um, add some instances to it. You can create what they call services, which are Docker applications that um, the ECS scheduler will keep alive. And it will work if you're just clicking around the console. When you, though, start using the AWS SDK and start gluing these different services together, so you might use Route 53, which is their DNS service, Lambda, which is code as a service, the serverless platform, and the ECS API, you can then, for example, build a like your own uh, service discovery tool which of course you'll go and do that and then they'll come out with their own and you realize that your 5,000 lines of code that you sweated out is no longer necessary. But when you start to unlock the power of AWS by gluing things together and Lambda especially, which for for people who don't know, is basically you write, you write say like a single, the idea is you write a single function of code 
or like a JavaScript function or Go or uh, Java or Python, a single unit of code that does one thing. So it basically listens to an event and that might be an HTTP request or an event to say that an object's been uploaded to S3. It it will then, this bit of code will then be executed on Lambda um, and then it can do something else. And when you start to glue these AWS services together, that's when you start to unlock the power of it and you can do some of the most incredible automation very, very cheaply. And, And that's when you come up with new ways that you can build things that are really really cheap to run scale out really well which is really important when especially when you're working at a startup or a company that works uh, that operates at a global scale and you, you know you get to use your favorite co- your favorite language to do it in because the sdk is available in almost every language it, it's a lot of fun to work with and you know most people don't think of managing servers and such as being fun but i i, I think it's great fun um and also i get a lot of kicks out of helping other people um, so I spend a lot of time in the Laravel UK Slack channel, um, hanging out on the AWS channel or the help needed channel, just helping give people points to where they might be going wrong or how they could look at a particular service in a different light. Um, yeah, I, I get a lot of kicks from AWS. Totally agree with you. Have you used any of the other platforms uh, like Google's platform, Azure, Microsoft platform? I haven't used no is the is the short answer. I'm I'm fairly familiar with their offerings because Well they're very much part and parcel now, aren't they, with AWS. The idea is you can get the equivalents. Uh, yes, on the whole for like the basic services. So you can get you can get compute and you can get storage and um manage manage database services uh, and serverless now and things like that. But AWS has got still got way more services. I I kind of pay attention to them because it's 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 always interesting to see what other people are doing, and especially when you get to the point where you're, you know, you split your application out like we have to so many different microservices. Sometimes it might be more appropriate to deploy it on another platform because then you can take a, advantage of one of their features. So I know, like, uh, if you were like in the, I'm not, but if you were uh, saying like the Kubernetes ecosystem, then if you want to be truly cloud agnostic and you know, you don't want to ever worry about AWS going down or Azure going down, then you can host in Google, Azure and AWS and on-premise and be totally bulletproof or cloud-proof for when, you know, something goes wrong inevitably. So I I kind of pay attention to it, but no, I haven't actually used them myself. I I like the idea of being cloud-proof. That's very cool. I'm a firm believer in, so so if I'm designing something, I'll always try and design it to be highly available to one AWS region. So that means, um, so all AWS regions have got multiple availability zones, which an availability zone is made up of one or more data centers. And these availability zones are geographically isolated. So if there was an earthquake or there was a flood in theory, only one availability zone will be taken out, and you've you that you can then run your application in multiple. If you're running your application in multiple availability zones, in theory, you won't be affected. So AWS make it really easy to make to run high availability applications, and then some of their newer services, such as um, global DynamoDB tables, so you can run essentially a master master uh, database in any. When in any region, and then they're shortly well, they're shortly rolling out Master Master Aurora, which is their MySQL PostgreSQL fork, um, in a Master Master or global Master Master, which in itself is just bonkers. 
um uh, the, the one that really you know blows my mind is serverless aurora which is basically on-demand mysql database and you only pay for the, the 100 milliseconds that it's running for to run your one query that that itself is incredible so yes yeah, so it's, it's really easy to write high availability zones uh high, sorry high availability applications that are running in one zone and increasing more and more it's becoming easier to run global applications um as they make it easier to connect different uh vpcs or virtual private networks together running in different regions and their global databases and things like that is it's just such a fun platform to to sit down and doodle out crazy architecture plans and you can exactly and you can and it's very cheap for you to actually deploy them and to try them and the rich yeah the rich systems and stuff it has which constantly are changing just yeah it's bamboozled like the fact that how they do this what does it mean then to be an aws solutions architect because i know that's one thing before you work full-time you move full-time you know you're a freelance aws solutions architect i'm just wondering kind of like how did that role come to be for you and and what 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 was what did it encompass um, the, the reason why I, I started going down that route was because one, at this point, I'd taken a couple of AWS certifications. Uh, and what are the AWS certifications? Um, so there's two levels. There's the associate level and the professional level. Uh, the associate level, you've got a developer certificate, which is all about being familiar with the API calls and the SDKs and principal AWS services that a developer might use, such as EC2, RDS, VPC, IAM. You've got the Solutions Architect, which um, introduces a few more services, and that's about designing solutions that use multiple AWS services and connecting them together to form yeah, the, the solution to whatever the problem is. Um, and then there's a sysadmin solution, which is more tuned around uh, Linux and Windows traditional sysadmin problem solving with AWS. Um, and then once you've achieved two of them, you can then do your professional certification. Uh, and that's either a professional solutions architect uh, certificate or a professional DevOps certificate. So I've got um, two of the associates and uh, I'm just about to take my DevOps professional certificate which you, um, which has been way more training than I thought it was going to be. That's so cool. How did, how have you found the certification system and like using it? Do you feel it would be beneficial for someone who who uses AWS day to day, like to actually have this as well? I certainly found it useful for getting in the door as a freelancer. It is one very, it's a very easy way of demonstrating that you know what you know roughly what you're doing. I did find it useful as well as when I was working full time as a developer when I did my original developer certification because i got to know some of the aws services a bit more intimately so i remember actually well, at the time we were using sqs um the simple queuing service quite a lot and one of the problems i had was the bills are starting to get quite high for it which is quite incredible when it's like 50 cents for a million api calls but the problem was was that the my little worker service would query sqs to see if there were any messages available there weren't so the connection would be immediately cut and then it would immediately open up a new connection and throughout my well one of during one of my bits of learning for about sqs for the developer certification i discovered there's a property which i think is called uh, receive wait seconds which you can set between zero and 20 seconds uh, by default with zero and basically if you set it to 20 if there are no messages available when the initial uh, api request is made it will then keep the connection or 
SQS will keep your API connection open for 20 seconds or however long you set it to before closing it, giving it an opportunity to return any results or any messages that might come in during that time. And so, you know, I was immediately able to use that to, you know, reduce our billing problem and also um, just improve the overall performance of our application because it wasn't just burning through CPU credits, continuously making requests to SQS. You do mention in your po- in the podcast, actually, you know, like, and I think it was in your video series, you were mentioning kind of, you know, the idea for writing for that, that there's so much knowledge that is required for the, obviously the billing around things, uh, because, you know, that's a very complex topic in the AWS world. And when you first look out and it can be very confusing and daunting, but it, it does soon to make sense. I think with me with AWS, what I love is the fact that, and I think it shows you, you know, the difference, the art certificates you can get where you can work on so many different levels. You can be very high level thinking, you know, I want to go serverless. So I want to only think about, you know, that function as a, you know, as code function as a service, or I want to go right bare metal and I want to play VPCs and I want to play around with just easy two instances and it will cater for any of this, or it will cater for even actually completely bare metal instances, sorry, and playing around with GPUs and stuff. Uh, It's yeah, it's a great service. Yeah. One of my favorite services, which I'm trying to build a video series around, as you mentioned, is S3, which I think to many people, uh, S3, they just see it as like a, an ob, uh, like a object blob store, which is, you know, dump user photos that then uploaded, but uh, S3 is truly awesome. Um, so for example, with S3, you can fire off events into other uh, AWS services so uh, when a photo is uploaded so um, an example of this is uh, in our app at work when a user uploads a uh, uploads a photo rather than uploading directly to our, uh, our Irish S3 bucket it goes into an accelerated S3 bucket so it actually gets uploaded to their nearest AWS server wherever they are in the world that then gets tunneled through to the bucket in Ireland when that uh, using AWS's own private fiber network when it lands in the S3 bucket we then that fires off a lambda function which then validates the photo reads some metadata from the photo itself that's been set on the object um, and then inserts that into a database so that means that we've got highly scalable very fast um, store um, upload service for a user whereby we can also validate what's being received and then save it um, save it to the, uh, back to the database knowing that it's been uploaded it's definitely been uploaded from our application it's definitely an image that's been uploaded not like a word document or something more nefarious and you can just plug and play with it and then there's another cool uh, thing that I've been playing with recently called S3 Select. So let's say you've got um, a CSV document that's been uploaded to S3. If this S- uh, C- CSV document, say, contain a million rows and you want to retrieve that document to then do something with it, but you only actually care about a certain percentage of that document, you can actually do an SQL query on the uh, on the contents of that CSV before returning it. So not only are you returning data that's more useful to your application but you're also paying less because you're only sending data over the wire or you're reducing your bandwidth cost because you're only sending data over the wire that's actually relevant to what you need that is so cool so cool and i have to download the whole thing just to then find that that one little bit you need exactly and then you can do life cycles so you know we only care about user uploads for 30 days and then we want to archive them or 
delete them so you can do that you can do some quite advanced analytics now with um, metrics on what's actually in there so you can use that to uh, say clean up really old stuff so if you for example if you're dealing with payments you might need to keep financial records for seven years well if you've got a bucket that's got content in there that's building up over time you might want to use uh, these metrics uh, these metric metric apis to then delete stuff after seven years there's another really cool service i've been playing with recently called athena which is aws's hosted version of a tool called presto which came from facebook and basically um, athena will query objects in an s3 bucket so if you're say uploading it let's say every day your application took a snapshot in csv form of a financial table in your database you can then use athena to query over all of these csvs that are um in your s3 bucket and because it's not a um an application that's running full-time athena that is you only you actually pay the, the billing models you pay by the gigabyte of data sorry the terabyte of data ingested that is an insane metric isn't it like the, the terabyte the inner role platform uh our marketing guys have got access to like the master mysql database which is obviously full of pii and we're now living in a gdpr world so our solution to that is we're going to start dumping csv files into an s3 bucket um, which have had all the PII stripped, and then they can write their existing SQL queries directly into Athena instead, get the same results back, but we know it's been sanitized. And also we're not paying to run a, a database 24-7. You know, it's a great blog post about this, about how some people like turned, you know, like a $400 a month application to a $2 a month application. And obviously you can take it a st- step further. If you don't want to use CSV, you can use um, like a columnar, storage format like a parkway or orc i think it's called and then your which also compresses the data as well so then you can turn like several hundred megabytes worth of csvs into tens of megabytes of parkway files that are actually even better optimized for querying against so yeah ss3 is in my opinion one of the coolest aws services out there how is your video series going then like how far through are you then so this video series was originally a book and it was all about um, deploying to AWS and it was going to be four parts. Uh, so deploying with Elastic Beanstalk, Opsworks, Codeploy and ECS. Uh, and then I got through, I, I wrote about a third of the book and then I can't remember what it was now, but some, basically AWS deprecated something and improved it but it meant i had thousands of words i've written that were completely irrelevant now then i decided last summer to turn it into a video series that kind of inspired by um like laracasts and then i started working this i I made it i I wrote i wrote about 60 lessons um started recording them and then decided that actually i don't unlike say jeffrey way who has got all the time in the world to work on new videos for Lara Chat and you know he's so natural at recording whereas I'm I'm quite conscious of how I sound and I'm new to editing videos so I was really slow at recording videos and then I discovered that I couldn't both talk out loud and click a mouse um, around a screen um, so then I had to split the audio and the video into two different parts and merge them back together I, I, I basically I decided that, that that was too much to commit to so now I'm just working on an S3 masterclass series. And as you've just heard, I, I love S3. So it's going to be about 20 videos. I've got over half of them recorded. 
Uh, I'm still working on some of the more advanced ones, such as using Athena and um, using some of the more uh, advanced, like event-driven things you can make. Oh, that's another thing. Sorry, I've just thought of, uh, because I'm just looking at the contents list of this video series. Um, S3 can also be used to host static websites, which is is amazing. Um, Again, you don't even need to worry about a server. That's it. And you stick CloudFront in front of it and it will deal with HTTPS termination and you're done. And it, and it's, you know, really fast because it's hosted on CDN that's, you know, hosted worldwide. So, um, yeah, so I'm still working on some of the more advanced lessons. I was hoping to have it ready for this month because I'm speaking tomorrow at Laravel Live in London, but buying a house. But basically what happened was in January, uh, my partner and I decided to buy a house and that was a stupid idea because the amount of energy that i've wasted failing to buy two houses now and we're partly th- we're, we're part way through a third one now is it just saying broken down the chain and all that fun stuff yeah we got consumptive one and then the second one it turns out the cowboy uh, it was a cowboy builder who really screwed us over and anyway buying houses is a stupid idea guys don't do it <laughs> <laughs> do, do aws don't buy house do AWS. yeah put all your money in aws generation run forever anyway proper first world problems this um yeah basically that drained all of my time and energy and so i've been working on it drips and drabs so i am intending to have it finished this year which is about a year later than i intended it but i am still intending to do it that's awesome well I'm, i look forward to it yeah you'll you'll probably see me run, uh, raving about it on twitter at some point it'll be a sudden announcement because i finally finished it that evening and i just want to get rid of it I've got I've got quite a few other ideas. So after S3, I want to do um, a series on RDS. So all the different RDS services. So obviously you can host MySQL, Aurora, which is Amazon's own off- offering, Postgres, MSSQL, etc. Um, and I want to that, that one. I want to dive a bit more into. Even though it's a managed service, you, it still needs some managing. So I want to take a look at um, like some advanced RDS management. Yeah, like the parameter groups and stuff, tweaking them to to get the most out of it. Because as you say, it's just a managed version of something that you that you still need to do. It's it's magic, but there is still stuff that needs to happen. Exactly. And then um, at work, we've ditched RDS completely for our primary databases, and um, all the microservices are talking to DynamoDB tables. And I've become a humongous DynamoDB fanboy. And on paper, I always well on paper, and when you first start using it, DynamoDB is the most complex database you could possibly imagine working with and i just i i I've, i love it i just think it's frankly completely awesome and when i was at reinvent in las vegas last november i went to one of their expert level workshops and i just learned some really cool stuff you can do with it and yeah i i really want to do a dynamo db series at some point what well, so what actually is the talk then you're doing at laravel tomorrow then oh so th- that one's about 12 factor apps so i'm doing 12 factor laravel apps and I need to finish my slides after this. <laughs> and then uh, I've almost finished them. I'm just not happy with the, like, the ordering of them and the story I'm trying to tell. Would it be available like a, as a recording? I'm not sure, but I'm doing the same talk at Laracon Lara, uh, Lara EU um, in August. And that one definitely is being recorded, which is good, actually, because I've got this one to rehearse it. So. <laughs> That's awesome. One of the big things, deciding factors, and you mentioned like puzzling things, you know, piecing things together uh, and, you know, you can program things together using the AWS command line and whatnot. And the concept of infrastructure as code, 
writing code that essentially provisions this infrastructure. You know, you've, you mentioned um, the Anstables, you've got the puppets of the world and whatnot. And these services where you, you know, like AWS, where you've got a nice, the AWS console where you're clicking around and stuff, that's great for starting off. But then you really need, and you know, you want to be able to provision a server, provision an infrastructure, which now has lots of different bits to it. Uh, I'm just wondering, what, what camp are you in? Are you a CloudFormation guy or you're a Terraform guy? Uh, very much in the Terraform group. Although one of the things we're starting to discover is that actually Terraform works and extends. So it starts to break down when you start working with multiple AWS accounts. So we've split all our environments up into multiple AWS accounts. So we've got a, what we call the identity account, which is the one we, if we, so if we're going into the console, we sign into the identity account and then we assume a role in another account just like a click of a button, then we're, we jump into that other account. And that means if someone li- joins the organiz- uh, joins the company or leaves the company, there's one place to give them or revoke their credentials. And it's also a bit safer because it's easier to limit permissions. So for example, in the staging environment, we've got full access to do whatever we want on the console. In production, we've got the same permissions minus things like delete table or drop database and things like that. So using IAM, it's much easier to grant permissions. And then likewise, we've got a marketing AWS account where, so that that example I mentioned, whereby we're generating CSVs and moving them into an S3 bucket. That S3 bucket is actually in a different AWS account. So we've got complete isolation. There's no risk of um, any PII data being accessed from our production account. Likewise, we've got um, a group of data scientists working with us. They've got their own AWS account. We've got another AWS account that's, that just does billing. So anyway, so, so with Terraform, it works really nicely if you're just working in one, in one AWS account. But where the the Terraform workspaces feature, it's the it's like the easiest way of working with multiple AWS accounts. It starts it is has doesn't have all the features baked in. So for example, with if you're just working with one AWS account, you can use Terraform Taint to recreate a table so i use it quite a lot if i'm recreating a DynamoDB table because DynamoDB doesn't there's no trivial way of wiping a DynamoDB database it's actually quicker just to drop it and recreate it there's if you use using workspaces you can't taint a resource which is quite frustrating there's also some other oddities around like the cli becomes a bit clunky because you always have to remember to mention a, a specific directory you're working in and it's working to an extent not that this is necessarily solved by cloud formation either have you looked into cloud formation as well then did you like take a, a vested interest in both and then decide yeah so the, the guy um who works with me he's an aws guru he probably knows it better than me um and he he's he's joined us from a like a devops company um who work as contractors for other companies and so he's worked with lots of enterprise and corporates and setting up this multiple aws um, account environments quite a standard practice and he comes from the cloud formation world um, and uses like Python tools like Troposphere and another one called Scepter that is kind of like a it's like a Python library that sits on Troposphere, which itself is a Python library which generates cloud formation code. And he reckons that even at the sort of scale that we're like the sort of things that we're trying to do, even that would start to break down. So it's not perfect, but it, it works on the whole. It's very interesting though, and I think that's when you get to these like scales and you get to this kind of infrastructure and the way you're distributing. Currently, we're we're still one account, which I do want to change, but we're one account where we do have dev staging and live in, so we have to be quite careful. And our, our terraforms get quite big and stuff to manage those. I've I've always historically been a everything in one account, but actually, especially because I've spent most of this year working on 
our GDPR compliance, it has in many ways made it easier to ensure one that it's there's no mixing of personal information between environments, but also because we can do really nitty gritty IAM policies to restrict who can do what. Hopefully, in the long run, it's going to it just removes some of the risks of accidentally dropping a Dynamo DB table or nuking an S3 bucket by mistake as well. So yeah, I noticed um, another thing actually is I noticed that you actually built an iOS app recently, uh, and I would just love to know like what what is the app and like how was your experience with Swift and the iOS platform and the dreaded iTunes and iOS kind of app acceptance. So I've got a really severe nut allergy, and my partner and I went to Japan a couple of years back, and I was carrying around this little piece of paper that I printed off. I, so I got some professional translations done to explain my allergy. And I had another one that explained what to happen, what that I need to go to hospital, and you know these are my medical details. And then on the plane home from Japan, I had this idea that it, this would be so much easier if it was an app because this piece of paper, like, was by the end of the t- by the end of the two week trip, I'd I hadn't lost it, but it was so crumpled up because it'd been in the back of my jeans pockets, and you know it could have been easily lost, and uh, then I'd be really stuffed. You know, not not that this is actually made any simpler by, you know, if you lost your phone. But anyway, I thought it'd be a cool idea to have it as an app. So in this ridiculously long flight home from Japan, I kind of fleshed out what I wanted to do, which was basically build an app that allowed you to select your allergy um, and then select a language that it would be translated into. So over that summer, so that was in the Easter. And then over the summer, I built an app called Can't Eat That. And basically allows you to do exactly that. You can choose an allergy, you choose the language, and then you say, you can change the question to say, either like, I have a severe nut allergy, what can I eat from this menu? Or I have a severe nut allergy, can I eat this? So it allows you just to tweak the parameters there. And um, I'd worked with mobile developers for a long time. And one of the things I thought would be a good idea was to try and understand some of the constraints because mobile developers i love working with them but sometimes they i've always found like some of their their requests a bit strange so for example if you're building an api like they they prefer like an array of objects rather than just an object as a response for example which i always found quite strange so I, I wanted to try and learn a bit more about their constraints on their platform so i learned a bit more about that and then also what was quite interesting for me certainly coming as you know as a php developer you know, working with servers that potentially have unlimited amounts of resources is then working on an application that's running on a device with a lot of restrictions, both in terms of the operating system policies, the frameworks, and also you're constrained by memory and CPU. So in terms of how I found working with iOS, immensely confusing at first. One of the the things I found hardest was not Swift itself. I actually found Swift quite easy to pick up because... It, at the time, it's, I, I think it's evolved quite a bit since. But at the time, it wasn't too dissimilar from like ES6 JavaScript um, in terms of its syntax. What what was confusing was learning like the the concepts, such as like a view controller or a segue between view controllers, uh, where you move from one screen to the other in you know layman's parlance. Le- learning all sort of that sort of stuff, and also because I wanted in-app purchases, so. Basically, in the app, you get French for free, and then you pay tuppence to unlock uh, additional languages. So having then to learn a framework called Storekit, um, which is not the nicest language, and you have to sit and listen to, you kind of have like another thread running, 
um, that listens to a callback, which then you use to say that something's been purchased or your purchases have been restored um, if the user's installed the application from like a backup or something. So that was my first exposure to threaded programming, but also learning, you know, something that's got a completely different set of concepts and constraints. Overall, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, the the other thing I really wanted to do was a lot of tutorials out there will show you how to use um, a feature of Xcode called Story Builder. Oh, sorry, Storyboard, sorry, which is like the, the drag and drop widgets. The problem with that, though, is if you if you don't want to use just vanilla standard out-of-the-box widgets, um, you're kind of stuffed anyway. But also, it then becomes quite messy because storyboards when you save a storyboard to git it's an xml file and like a really verbose xml file yeah they're looking at diffs and stuff on that is not helpful really unhelpful also xcode itself is not a great ide like source kits which is their like the renderer that does the syntax highlighting is really slow and if you make a syntax error it can take a couple of seconds for the ide to catch up with you and tell you it's an error and by this time you're you know three lines down it's not a great editor, but then when you mix storyboards into this drag and drop concepts into your code as well, it just becomes really messy. So I then kind of like pushed myself to learn a bit more about how these views are put together. I wrote all the layout itself in code, um, not using storyboards at all. So no drag and drop, all of the individual images and like I've got quite a nice um, little um, parallax effects. I learned how to build that myself. And yeah, it was it, it, it was a fun experience. And I've been wanting for a while to update it. And I looked at the code a couple of months back and because I hadn't done anything on it on it in over a year, I completely forgotten everything. So over the past few weeks, I've been trying to teach myself iOS almost from scratch and try and work out why I did this or why I did that. It's always fun looking at your own code, isn't it? And if you end up getting angry, who would write this? You're like, oh, it's me, damn it. That's the thing. I can only blame myself here. I, I, I definitely recommend it as an experience to anyone, if only because th- there's never any harm in expanding your own knowledge set. Even if you, you know, I have no intention of ever becoming an IRS de- a developer, but I feel like I've got a bit more of an understanding into that world now. So now when I'm working with the iOS team and they're saying that, okay, well, this feature, we're going to need a view controller and we're going to need like X, Y, and Z. I've got some basic understanding. You can put the puzzle together. Yeah. and uh, Did you work out why the array? Did you work out why they need APIs like they like arrays back? But it's to do with um, um, core data, which is like the serialization to database format. And it, it just works with arrays, basically. The developers I was working with at the time were using um, and arrays of objects make sense for the paradigm. That's cool, and and also like you know, kind of designing and building these things, and like the, how how is the like the API and actual application integration? Like, how did you store these like language set, sets? Were they on the on the API side, and then they'll come down, pull down once they've been purchased, or was it all unlockable on the device? So originally it was going to be pulling down from an API. Then I decided I couldn't be bothered to write an API and then maintain it and keep it running. Um, and Lambda hadn't, more importantly, Lambda hadn't been released at the time. <laughs> they're just they're just hard coded into the app. So yeah, in theory, you could decompile the app and rip the strings out or such, but I'm not that bothered. But yeah, it, it's all just built into the app. So it, the app can work completely offline, which is what you want really when you're traveling. Thinking that's the ideal thing, isn't it? It's when you need it the most is when you haven't got the internet connection. Yeah, exactly. So what I've actually been working on another app that's 
uh, and you'll appreciate this living or commuting to London, London sometimes. So where I am now, as I was explaining to you before we started recording, uh, I'm quite fortunate that I live on four different train lines and I work in central London in Soho. So depending on which tube station I walk to or which uh, main train train station I walk to, I've got the options of different lines and I've never yet found a uh, national rail app I'm quite happy with. Um, so I've come up with like a quite a different way of looking at train times and merging them into a UI that I've never seen them before in a, in a uh, travel app. And so I've got a basic iOS version working, but now that I've got a Pixel device um, and also I've learned a little bit about Android now, having worked with Android developers for the first time, I'm quite keen to sit and learn learn Android now. Go down the Java route. Yeah, well, it's actually, all, they're using Kotlin now which in itself isn't actually too dissimilar from to swift so the the ui paradigm is very different to android i've learned so they they have this thing called fragments and when you move from like one screen in an android app to another screen in an android app and if you're an android developer and you're listening to me right now and screaming at me please forgive me because this is you know my basic understanding of it but basically you build it up it's like what they call fragments which are these mini applications which represent different views, and then you pass data from one view to the other. And the idea is, if the app is killed at any point or gone into, it go into goes into the background. When it relaunches, it will relaunch at the fragment you were last at, which is really different to iOS, where it, where you kind of go into the main application itself, and then you restore states by instead, yeah, you instantiate the right class that represents the view and things like that. So it, it, it's a slightly different paradigm to iOS, but Again, I, I think it's from both my own professional development, but also because, you know, I am in charge of a team that comprises of or partly comprises of Android developers. I think it's the right thing for me to do as well to try and have a better understanding of their world and their constraints so that I can be a better team leader. I think that's a really admirable thing to do. And, and you know, to be walking their shoes for a bit to see, you know, I mean, ex- what you can expect from them, you know, like realistically from what, you know, the actual platform, you know, and it's just, I suppose the only thing is having the time to do it, which is obviously the hard part. Yeah. So now it's a toss up of, do, <laughs> do I finish my video series or do I finish this, this other app? And given that my Pixel isn't my main device, I'll probably finish the iOS version and then never get around to the Android version. But Well, it's good to have a list of things to do. You know, this is what you need. You need the to-do list, you know, and so when you have time, you're always constantly filling it. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. It's one of the things I miss about freelancing. I could just take some time off and not have to worry about, you know, if I, if I wanted to, I could just take some time off and, you know, suck up the fact I'm not earning anything and... That's it. You could spend the week doing something else and like learning it, and then go back. Exactly, but but I don't. But no, uh, I'll find some time. Maybe maybe when I finally move house, I'll take some time off around that. And well deserved rest. Well, well, well deserved. Kind of enjoying, you know, doing something like. That. Obviously, I'm I'm sure my other half will want me painting instead. You'll have loads of that fun today, and uh, after the, the first couple of rooms, it does get a little boring. So podcasts are uh, podcasts and audiobooks are winners. I completely agree. I'm, I'm a big podcast fan. I was showing someone the other day, and I, I think I worked out 82 podcasts I listen to. <laughs> Holy moly! Oh man, I have to. I sometimes have to prune my list sometimes just to keep it manageable. So, so I, what I found is uh, works really well for me is I class I class my podcast into evergreen so for example i listen to a game show podcast where it's like they play like trivial pursuit or it which sounds really lame but it's quite it's quite entertaining 
um, because they're normally drunk when they're doing it. But so I've got some podcasts which are evergreen. I can listen to them anytime. Then they 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 yeah, they're, they're easy listens and they're they're not necessarily topical. Then I've got my daily listens. I've got a political podcast I listen to every day on the way when I'm walking back from the office to get the get the train home. And I've got one or two others that are, are timely. And then I've got my everything else section. Um, which I'll just listen to when I've run out of my topical and I'm not in the mood for an evergreen. That's good. What, what app do you use? So I use Overcast. Have you always been an Overcast guy? Since day one. Yeah. <laughs> you and Mark Armin fan. Fan as well. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been really interesting. Uh, Davin, in all these different topics. You're very, and you're so knowledgeable in all of them. So it's been super interesting. Very welcome. It's, it's been great talking to you. Awesome. All right, then, audience. Well, it's been another great episode. And we'll speak to you again next week. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at 3devsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number 3, Devs and a Maybe. <laughs>